Grange Gorman Histories presents A Brief History of the Dublin Metropolitan Cattle Market with Dr. Mary Muldowney and Dr. Declan O'Brien. You're very welcome. So, um, I got involved in this project a few years ago when during the Dublin Festival of History in 2019, can we even remember that far back with all that's happened in between? Anyway, I gave a talk on the history of the Dublin Metropolitan Cattle Market. And my interest in the subject had arisen uh, because it was an example of a once very significant workplace that had disappeared completely. There was no trace of it. And I was planning to research a series on the many vanished workplaces in Dublin City that had once been the hub of the neighbourhoods in which they were situated. Now, unfortunately, other things got in the way, not least a global pandemic, so I hadn't had time to devote much serious effort to the research uh, before the archives and libraries shut down in early 2020. So the cattle market made a brief appearance in my contribution to volume two of History on Your Doorstep, which is the annual book that my colleagues and I as historians in residence for Dublin City Council produce every year. Um, so late in 2021, I was contacted by Dr. Declan O'Brien here, uh, who is an author of the book that you see here on the Dublin cattle market's decline. So that was sort of its, its final years. And he invited me to work with them on an expanded version of that book and I hope he hasn't been regretting it ever since because I tend to be very busy and not the most assiduous in keeping to deadlines, unfortunately. Um, but however, my contribution would be to take a social history approach to the research uh, and Declan is an acknowledged expert on both the cattle industry but in agriculture in general. So we look like we'd make a good team. Uh, he had already consulted, done some interviews for this book that you see here. And I hoped that uh, I would be able to identify more people who could talk about uh, hopefully working in the cattle market or their memories of living in the area and how it impacted on this particular area of Dublin. So I put out an appeal and I got a great response but from literally all over the country and we're still getting offers of interviews on that basis. But I didn't get any from the people who I particularly wanted to reach, which were the drovers. Mm. And uh, I did get names and contact details for a few, but when I got in touch with them, they really weren't willing to talk to me. Most of them just said they would be able to. Uh, it was an incredibly tough job, and I can only assume that uh, it had taken a toll on their health over the years. So, really, uh, it may be that that was the reason, but a good few of them have also passed on. But you may be aware of Kevin Kearns, who is a leading oral historian from America, who regularly comes to Ireland to work on projects. Actually, I should be more specific, he comes to Dublin. Uh, he's done a lot of books about Dublin history based on interviews. Uh, and thankfully, his book on Stony Batter uh, had an interview with uh, a man called Bobby Walsh. And Bobby described himself as the oldest drover alive at the time the book was written, which was you know, quite some time ago, 1989. So, um, there are possibly still some oldest drovers alive, but unfortunately none of them willing to contribute to this book. However, going back to when the market started, it's, it was 111 years from opening to closing. And anyone walking along the North Circular Road in that time, uh, or around its junction with Blackhorse Avenue or Prussia Street on certain days of the week, would have found it thronged with cattle, pigs and sheep, and of course the humans who were driving them, 
and in later years there would have been maybe lorries that they'd been loaded into, but they were still being driven for the most part down to the docks uh, for shipment to the UK. There had been a cattle market in Smithfield since the 17th century, uh, but in the 19th century there was a lot of pressure being put on the then Dublin Corporation because really it was a health hazard. You know, it, it wasn't brilliantly run and a lot of the salespeople who worked from, the, um, from Smithfield were complaining that it was run by a cartel and was actually um, a bit dodgy in terms of prices and everything else. But anyway, the new market was opened in 1863 and it became the major point for cattle being brought from around the country to be shipped through the north, uh, driven through the north side streets down to the docks for export. The market had opened following some years of debate about the site where it would go. There were various proposals to upgrade the Smithfield site um, and because of the constant complaints about the state of it, uh, which had been going on for at least 30 years, most of the criticism concerned the insanitary conditions. But there were also suggestions, as I said, that the salesmasters were not operating totally honestly. In 1852, there was a Royal Commission and uh, it basically was looking at the free market status of Smithfield and it was investigating the complaints and found that there was indeed a monopoly uh, that essentially excluded any new salesmasters coming in. And of course farmers also were complaining that uh, about the role of the salesmasters that if they tried to sell directly to consumers, like butchers or even ordinary people, uh, their animals were run off by drovers hired by the salesmen. So a bill was enacted in July 1862 by the Westminster Parliament and it approved the establishment of a new cattle market but not allocating a site or any resources for its development. So finally the site between Prussia Street, Ockram Street and the North Circular Road was chosen and was purchased. And it was mainly um, the property of the Jamison family who ran the distillery. And they had bought it from its previous owners in 1804. In 1850, it was listed as having seven acres with a rateable value of 126 pounds per annum, which was very valuable at the time. Building work was commenced, including the construction of masonry boundary walls up to 18 feet in height, uh, presumably to keep the animals in. Um, the installation of iron railings was carried out and various gates and concrete pens were made to hold the animals together with the necessary gratings and sewers, which hadn't really been uh, very much a feature of Smithfield. Um, I'll leave the rest to your imagination. But the city engineer, a man called Park Neville, designed the major buildings and layout. So the Dublin Metropolitan Cattle Market was formally opened on 24th of November, 1863. The Jemison family home had been transformed into the Cattle Market Hotel in time for the opening celebrations. A banquet for councillors, cattle agents, investors in the Dublin cattle market uh, and others was held in the hotel that night. The name of the hotel was later changed to the City Arms Hotel and that remained in business until the early 1970s. And of course it is now the home of the Cyril Skull Meheran, the Free University of Ireland. And at which point I will turn over to my esteemed colleague. Thanks, Mary. When talking about the, the cattle market, we have to talk about the context of, of, the, of agriculture in the 19th century and um, what was going on. So the, the cattle market had a dual role in the livestock business. Its primary function was to regulate the supply of cattle, pigs and sheep to the city's butchers and that's why it was 
when, when it was located here in Prussia Street, the um, Dublin City Abattoir, which was the municipal abattoir for the city, was located nearby off of um, North Circular Road. Secondly, the market facilitated the export of cattle to Britain. And one of the features in 19th century Irish agriculture, or one of the most pronounced features, is the shift from crops to cattle. And that was um, accelerated by the, um, by the famine. Um, livestock exports to Britain increased fourfold between the 1820s and the 1840s. Um, they went from, the number of cattle shipped went from 45,000 head, more or less on average, in the 1820s to about 200,000 head in the 1840s. By the First World War, however, there was about 800,000 cattle um, being shipped annually. There was also about 630,000 sheep. So um, Bismarck, in one of his comments about um, Ireland, was that um, it was like a cattle farm for Britain. You know, we were producing cattle for, for the British market. So the development in the, that shift from cattle to, to, or from crops to cattle was the Dublin cattle market piggybacked on the back of that. And it, it was reflected also in the size of the Irish cow health, which grew um, from 2 million head in 1854 to about 3.15 million head by 1900. In contrast, the area of under uh, wheat went from half a million acres down to 150,000 acres. So you see crops going this way, cattle going this way. And Dublin dominated, the, it became the shop window for this whole market. And it became the shop window because it handled, it, the port handled the bulk of the exports. It handled about 45% of livestock exports. And so where you had the primary port, you had in the vicinity of Dublin, you had the natural lens for finishing cattle. So what happened was cattle were produced in the south, they were produced in the west, and they filtered in to the glorified pale, I suppose, really, Loud, Mead, Dublin, Wicklow, Kildare. They were finished in these counties and then shipped to Britain. And they were either shipped as young cattle for further feeding on British farms, or else they were shipped to be slaughtered um, on site in, um, in um, slaughterhouses in the likes of Birkenhead, Liverpool, Manchester. Now, the, um, so all of these factors, like the market in essence, was the link between the cattle grazers, between the cattle producers, the cattle grazers, the cattle exporters in Ireland and the English buyers. In addition, its facilities, um, it had facilities that no other uh, market in the country had. It had, by um, 1890, early on it was selling, they were selling about 3,000 cattle a week, selling um, about 10,000 sheep. It was the biggest market in the, in the country. It set the tone of the, of the trade for the country. But by the 1890s, there was 5,000 cattle a week being sold in Prussia Street, and there was 7,000 sheep. So that, it was kind of the premier location. So, as I said, I've interviewed people in various places around the country, and we do hope to expand to uh, Britain, where the cattle would have been sent to in many cases, but that's an ambition for another few months. Anyway, David grew up in Dunchoclin, and he still lives there, and he remembered that he first started going to Dublin the cattle market in the early 1940s. Uh, he used to drive a tractor into Dublin with cattle or sheep in it, depending on what part of the market he was going to. 
and he was rearing the animals himself, although he didn't actually come from a farming family. His father was a GP in the area, and David was a student in Trinity at the time, studying engineering, so really this was a passion, but an unusual hobby maybe for somebody from that background. But he did know the Craigies quite well, who were auctioneers and valuers who had a stand in the market, and he went to them. And he said, really what brought me into it completely was I was doing a certain amount of selling sheep. Then the testing came in for TB, and it was decided then and there that uh, this was going to be a TB-free market. And all the cattle had to be examined before they went into the market. I used to go to Dublin on a Tuesday evening, and as a matter of fact, I would bring Donald up because they had a house in Prussia Street for the market. And Donald Craigie used to sleep there for the night before going to the market at five o'clock in the morning. And there's frequent references to that very early start. And that regardless of the time of year, it would have been bitterly cold, uh, no matter whether you were there in July or January. But Dermot was even younger than David when he went to the cattle market with his father for the first time. He said, I was probably about 11 or 12 when I went with my father to the Dublin cattle market first. My father was a pig dealer. We fed a few cattle, and if the trade was wrong or something went wrong, you ended up stall feeding. What we call stall feeding heifers for the Dublin market to be sold in January after Christmas. My memory is of going with my father and staying in Barry's Hotel. The market started at half past four, so then you can imagine yourself at half past four on a January morning in the Dublin cattle market and there was nothing but concrete and steel around you. You might as well be in the Arctic. And Dennis's story, I just realised there's a certain amount of alliteration here, there's a lot of my interviews names started with D. Uh, totally irrelevant. Uh, but anyway, Dennis's story of how he came to be going to the cattle market wasn't unusual. Um, his father got very ill and he was the eldest son, so he was expected to take over responsibility for the family income. And he was only about 13 or 14 at the stage and was away in uh, boarding school. He said, when I first came to the market, my father had an accident in 1961, and I was at school at the time. I was brought home from school at Easter, and I was at home when the accident happened. So I didn't go back to boarding school after Easter 1961. I was at home from that time on. Now, Dennis was too young to drive. So in order to get to the market early enough to do the business, he had to come a lift. And he set off from home in the middle of the night, and while he never had any trouble, I can't imagine myself or any parent uh, now being willing to let a young teenager go off in the darkness to see lift, seek lifts from complete strangers. Uh, just shows you how the country has changed and how we have with it. And although Dennis wasn't actually the oldest, he was only the oldest son, he had an older sister, it was never even considered that she might take on the work in the market. Um, another interviewee called Anne was not included in her family business either because she was female. She grew up on the old Camber Road. She said the name of the house was Cabra Villa and we have cattle yards around the house and we have cattle and sheep. I had six brothers and my dad and mom and my grandparents. We all lived in Cabravilla. We all had our cattle and sheep and we were very happy and it was a very different era then. They, kept in our, they were kept in our yards and we had a paddock and we had a little bit of land around the place and then we rented a field, Beresford, which went up to the top of the old Cabra Road. Now, um, Anne's brothers were all involved in the business, but there was never any question of allowing her in. And she actually gave me a kind of family memoir that she had written, but had photographs, and just to remind her nieces and nephews of 
the family's glory days in a sense because the business is long gone. But uh, she said her mother had been active in the enterprise when Anne was very young, but she had died while Anne was still at school. And conversations were always about the market and the animals and the business, but she was never included. And after a while, she just started to tune out because she knew she wasn't going to be involved. Um, she did have a little bit of, um, not bullying, but certainly being teased by members of her class at school about the nature of the family business, but she said it never bothered her, um, despite the sneering. So according to the census records from both 1901 and 1911, most male employment in the Stony Batter, Smithfield and Markets area was tied into the cattle business between the market itself and various associated enterprises. During the early years of the 20th century, this market was the busiest of its kind in Europe, as Declan just explained. And the sales were held each Wednesday and attracted buyers not only from Dublin's abattoirs, uh, but also British livestock traders. Uh, they came for slaughterhouses and farmers, mainly in the north of England and Scotland. The Thoms directories um, from those years showed that the majority of businesses and sources of employment at Stone the Better uh, were related to the cattle market, especially down um, from Prussia Street through uh, Stony Better and Manor Street. So there was a cluster of dealers and auctioneers' offices on uh, both Prussia and Manor Street. And Declan, again, your turn. <laughs> By the 1940s and 50s, um, the market really was in its pump. You know, you were talking, um, and it, it, you're talking at that time of around 5,000 cattle a week, about 250,000 cattle a year going through the market. And it's worth remembering in the 1940s and 50s the importance of the livestock of live cattle exports. They were generally. Um, generating around 30% of the state's total um, traded exports. So it was, it was a key business. Um, in, in terms of that business, the way it was structured was the, um, the people who ran the Dublin city um, of the Dublin cattle market were called sales masters. They were, they were really kind of um, livestock auctioneers. So the cattle were produced down the south and the west. They were usually railed to Dublin and then held in what were called cattle parks around the city. So they would be from um, up to Castleknock, Finglas, all that area. Um, so they, they then were traded, they were brought into the market and sold in the market. They were either shipped, slaughtered or um, they went for further feeding a small number of them. So the Prussia Street sale was at the apex of the Irish cattle market. And you could say, like as I said earlier, it was essentially it was the gateway to Britain for Irish cattle and it was the shop window. The cattle that were finally sold through the Dublin market had invariably been traded through, through local fairs around the country. Animals were generally moved from these small holdings in the west and the southwest to the grazing areas of Dublin Mead Kildare. Once fattened, the animals were then ready for export. While some cattle finishers or graziers um, sold their animals directly to exporters, the bulk of them went through the cattle market. And that was because they were guaranteed their money. The, that was a sure sign of getting paid. And the Prussia Street sale was really the weather vane for the trade nationally because the market effectively set the price cattle being paid for cattle and sheep right around the country. And it did this because reports from the Dublin market were in all the, or were in all the local papers. They were in the national papers. And when you come into the, from the 1940s, 50s, 60s, they were going on up and RT were, were covering the sales and you'd get reports on the radio. Um, why 
was Ireland supplying so many cattle to Britain? Well, it has been estimated that 30% of all stock that went on to be finished and slaughtered in Britain originated in Ireland. And the reason was the cattle here were, were produced generally off poor land, sort of a hound here. They thrived well when, once they hit the good farming systems at that time in Britain. They were disease-free. Ireland was one of the was the only country in Europe in the 1940s and 50s that was that was free of foot and mouth. The other country was Iceland, and there wasn't a lot of cattle in Iceland. And they also Irish cattle qualified for British subsidies. So when you took an Irish beast, an Irish animal to Britain, three months later it was considered British. It was before Brexit. And um, so the, the British farmers could then claim all the subsidies. It has to be remembered that there was rationing in Britain up to 1954. So everything was done through the Ministry of Food. So it was really a regulated controlled market. So that was, that was crucially important. So, uh, Declan's mentioned the abattoirs. There were also butcher shops that depended on the cattle market. And an added advantage uh, for ordinary people around this area was that they provided steady work, well, mainly for men, but there was a lot of work for women as well. But the workers in the abattoirs, in the butcher shops, and similar businesses had uh, meant that they were eligible to rent houses from the Dublin Artisans Dwelling Company. Uh, because the requirement of that was that you had steady, decent remuneration for your, uh, that you could afford to pay the rent. It may have been set up as a semi-charity, but it was fairly hard-headed in the sense that uh, anybody who applied for a home and there are, of course, so many in this area that they had to prove that they would be able to continue paying for it. Uh, it had been started, the artisan's dwelling, uh, in, by some of the members of the Dublin Sanitary Association. And the corporation had been clearing sites for, uh, under the Public Health Act and the Artisans and Labourers Act of 1875 because of the concerns about uh, epidemics of things like cholera, typhoid, typhus, all of which related to a lack of sanitation. So what the Dublin Artisans Dwellings did was build uh, homes like these that you can see on Oxmantown Road and of course mostly around um, Stony Batter and of course over the south side to some extent, but they were mainly red brick, one story or two story houses. And uh, because cattle sales were the primary business of the area, uh, the market in Precious Street was the final sales point for close to 90% of the stock that was exported every year. So houses were being built for employees of the market and the related ancillary businesses. Tom's directories, some of my favourite reading, uh, also show the number of small hotels and guest houses that accumulated along the streets along the way, especially along Manor Street. They were uh, run by women for the most part, and they uh, accommodated the dealers and buyers who were coming for the sales, and of course the sales masters. And at a time when the country's economy was so dependent on agriculture and the cattle trade in particular, uh, Dublin's cattle market acted somewhat like a national stock exchange, as uh, Declan explained. It set the prices at fairs and markets throughout the country and processing for the final sales of animals that were destined for export. But in the 20th century, the market had survived two world wars, Ireland's economic war with Britain, and it was still thriving in 1957, when the number of store and fat cattle sold there peaked at nearly 250,000 animals. 
and uh, a record number of sheep were also being sold. But the dealers and buyers acting for salesmasters bought cattle, bought cattle and other animals at fairs or off the land right across the south. It wasn't really just that it was a one-way traffic. They would go out from Dublin and buy animals to bring back. So they were purchased in the south, midlands and west. They were then moved by train or road east to the counties of Kildare, Meath and Dublin to be finished or sold immediately in the market. And one of the interviewees whom I met in Meath, he remembered his experience in the 1940s and 50s of traveling from Dublin to other parts of the country to buy cattle. And Paddy said the cattlemen used to go on a special train on a Sunday from Kingsbridge. Um, he meant Houston. <laughs> they had a special train. They put on a special carriage for the men going to the fairs. There'd be 20 men, there could be a lot of men going, but a lot of them were going to the fair, say, in Nina. Uh, Nina would be on a Monday, and then Thurlis on a Tuesday, Clonmen on a Wednesday, Charleville on a Thursday, and maybe some other place in Kerry uh, on another day, on a Friday. That was the way. You went away and stayed away the week, from one fair to the other. And you got a pass, you could buy a yearly pass on the train at that time, and he said he had a pass, I was only for the cattlemen. So you'd get it through the Cattle Traders Association if you were a member, but you had to be a member. Now, um, I don't have time now, but Paddy had some fabulous stories about the activities on the train going to the, um, the fairs, uh, a lot of which involved gambling very large amounts of money. But he swore to me that uh, tax was paid on this totally cash <laughs> Uh, you know, there, there was a great kind of emphasis on the honesty and how everybody treated each other fairly and that nothing ever went wrong, uh, communal cynic. Um, but anyway, uh, unfortunately we don't have time, you'll have to wait till the book comes out. But livestock going directly for sale were kept initially, as Declan said, in cattle parks, at least for a day or two. And they were now what are now well-established suburbs with um, totally built up. And uh, the livestock were shifted by local drovers. So there were Dubliners who were doing this work into larages or yards around Prussia Street primarily before being finally moved into the market on the morning of the sale. And it was reported that the driving of cattle along the road caused much inconvenience until the practice finally ended in the early 1960s. Now, I had to question that because I have distinct memories as a child. Uh, I may be elderly, but I still remember some things. And one of them was being brought up to the zoo by my father in the family car, uh, and it must have been on a Wednesday, and driving through uh, herds of what these enormous animals but the stink through the car windows and the detritus on the road was pretty horrific, um, especially to a city girl. Uh, but that would have been much later than the 1960s. It was into the 70s and the market closed in 73. So I suspect they were still being walked down to the docks in all that time. But one of the common themes that did emerge from the interviews was the remarkable skill of the drovers, especially in dealing with potentially dangerous situations. David told me a story that illustrated this. He said, we supplied cattle to farms and that sort of thing and brought them in to sell them in the market. Anyway, there was a lady in charge of it who wanted us to sell an Aberdeen Angus bull. So we brought it into the Laridge to bring into the market for Wednesday, and we couldn't handle it. It went mad. When you look at the size of a bull, you know. uh, anyway, uh, there was this little drover who was about. He wouldn't have stood five foot high, and he said, "I load that animal." We said, "Look, if you go in there and he kills you, we're not going to be responsible for this." 
um, my thoughts were how responsible how, as employers were they, but you know, uh, we can't be held responsible. So they got them to sign off on doing what they wouldn't do. Anyway, he went in and he gave the unfortunate animal a whack across the nose, caught it by the ring and let it straight into the lorry. Then he got down and said, there you are now. <laughs> um, David also spoke about the tough conditions for drovers who were paid very little and had little or no chance for advancement. He said some of these drovers lived in the most appalling conditions. You had one family of drovers and two of them worked continuously for the company. One of them ran the yard up on Blackhorse Avenue and the other cleaned the place after the market on Wednesday, uh, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. Another one did the same sort of thing. But anyway, Donald Craigie felt he should be given something for Christmas, so I was given a turkey to bring to him. He lived in a place called Paradise Alley, which was down near the Matter. I never saw any place like it. It was like a shambles. I just knocked on the door and handed in the turkey, and I'd say it was sold. But whoever named the place must have had a sense of humour, uh, a very black sense of humour. But there are plenty of Paradise Alleys still, you know, maybe not no longer existent, but. Uh, you know, a lot of the smaller streets around parts of the inner city would have been that kind of name or similar. Anyway, by the late, mid to late 1960s, financial problems were beginning to affect the market and coming up at council meetings. So Councillor John J. Walsh regular, regularly raised the issue of the losses in the market uh, that were effectively being subsidised by the corporation and by extension the ratepayers. And in that year, um, the estimated excess of expenditure over income in respect of the cattle market was £4,339. But in subsequent years, when Councillor Kent Walsh kept raising the issue, the deficit had risen. It was slow at first, but it got more dramatic in the later years of the market's operation. So that by March 1967, when Councillor Joe Dowling asked the city manager to list the services provided by the corporation which were operating at a loss, he was told that the estimated excess of expenditure over income in the current year was 46,396 in the case of the abattoir and 17,280 for the market. Just before going on to why the market closed and what was going on in the egg scene that led to that, there's just one one person who has a tie-in with Grange Gorman, who's what he he illustrates how people from a city background could get involved in the livestock industry, and his name was Paddy Gelman, and Paddy's two Paddy's parents were both nurses here in Grange Gorman. They were um, psychiatric nurses, and he lived in um, <coughs> Four Orchard View. And he said he used to he used to see the cattle going up and down Ratdown Road when they were going on to North Circular Road when they were being driven to the to North Wall. And while he was still in primary school, um, Paddy helped to to get involved in the trade. He 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 recalls going down to. Um, Crimmins Yard, which was on the bottom of Mallow Street. And there was um, lads there who used to buy a few cows. They'd be dairy farmers from North County Dublin. And um, Paddy's recollection of it was, there was one man in particular that sticks in my mind, and he was very elderly. And he would come every so often, and he would buy two, maybe three, maybe four or five cows at the time. He was from North County Dublin. And I used to bring them up past my house to Doyle's Corner. And when we'd get to the Brown Brew pub, he'd tell me, go back. And he was, he'd always give me sixpence. And you know, that was the start of it. Now, Paddy Gelman went on from there to become one of the, he'd no, he'd no tie up with agriculture, but he became one of the country's main live exporters and ended up on the borders of Borbia. And as a teenager in 1948-50, Paddy was earning about two pounds a week, which was a tidy sum of money at the time. 
and he said he was booking um, cattle. He was a booking agent for an exporter called Francie Dwyer. And he said he was all this work was done at the back of the classroom. And and I asked him how he knew he got to know Francie Dwyer. Francie Dwyer. Francie Dwyer. And he says, I knew his daughters. His daughters knew my sisters. And I had a, a bicycle and I'd go down and I'd book the cattle at the North Wall and I'd have the forms with me. I used to fill them out in school and I'd have them blocked out. I'd go down and when the cattle were passed by the vet, we'd go up and book them on to the, the LNS, the, the, the ship. And describing the pay, he explained, Francie Dreyer just give me a pound and I'd go up and meet the Englishman that had bought the cattle. And they told me the cat and, and, and told them that the cattle were all right. They used to stop in the forecourts hotel. And I'd cycle up and tell them that everything was kosher and that everything was shipped and they'd give me half a crown. And he was only he, he then went after that to, to Belfast to join the Royal Navy. And he started working in the in the, the live cat lady. He got offered a job in the hotel on the night he landed and he ended up working and came back here to, to the Dublin cattle market and worked with Smith Griffins and he's just um, you could do now you could do a talk on, on Paddy Gellman himself he's just a really interesting man but he shows how the cattle market gave an avenue for people who weren't necessarily from a farming background into the cattle industry and I think that's one of the that's one of, one of the, the, the great things about Dublin, the Dublin cattle market. It was a rural business in an urban setting. And it was, as a result, it was, it was a very interesting interface between rural and urban. But getting back to why the market closed, I think the market closing, and um, that was the, the basis of that, the NMA I did for that book. And it, it was kind of, the, the, the demise of the cattle market was a window into the changes that were happening in the Irish livestock industry in the 1950s. And the 1950s are painted as, as a dead decade, but there was a lot of stuff happening in the livestock industry and in agriculture, in fact. The foundations were set for the, for the later development and modernisation of it. And one of the things that happened was you have the beef industry starts. We start slaughtering cattle at home. So we were only slaughtering enough cattle for ourselves. The export of beef was at about 5,000 tons in 1949. By 1960, 11 years later, we are exporting 10 times that amount. We're exporting 50,000 tons. We're exporting to the United States, to Britain, to to, to Germany, to all across Europe, to, to Israel. So that was, it was a real dynamic industry that was established and flourished and, and, and just built the foundations were put in place for one of the pillar industries of Irish agriculture during this decade. Another thing that happened during that period was that the co-op mouths were established. These are farmer-owned mouths that managed the trading of livestock locally. And the reason why they were important was because the Dublin cattle market was seen as part of the old system. It was a system where you had the exporters, the grazers, the sales masters here in Dublin cattle market, they controlled the livestock industry. They controlled it for themselves. That was the perception from the farmer. The co-op mouths, was an attempt to break that control and wrest back control of the industry for the farm. And by the mid-1960s, what you see is the vast bulk of the cattle being sold in the country are not being sold in fails. They're being sold in, in um, these local mouths. And the local mouths effectively eroded the standing of the Dublin cattle market because a lot of the local mouths were as big as the Dublin, well not as big, but if you put, they were half the size of the Dublin cattle market. So people were saying, why send the cattle to Dublin? 
be sold, when they can be sold locally. Then you had people, intermediaries, primarily dealers, got on the idea, okay, why not meet the buyers in Dublin, at Dublin Airport to Dublin Port, get them in a car, drive them around the country, buy the cattle in the local marts. And by doing that, they totally undermine the, the, the um, Dublin cattle mark markets. It kind of extending and, and effectively they robbed its business. So by the end of it, you had five and 600 cattle were being sold in the Dublin cattle market. Any number of marts in the country would have had five or 600 cattle. So there was no, there was no reason to come to Dublin. But the other thing was, and, and this was a key thing, was Dublin City, the Dublin Corporation, they didn't have a strategic vision for what the market could become. All they saw it as was a problem. It was bringing shit on the roads from cattle. It was bringing trucks in around town. It was hassle. So they were happy to see it slide, to see it close. So by 1972, the deficit was 39,000 and Dublin Corporation said, right, that's enough. There was no future for uh, the market in the cattle business for the reasons Declan's explained. It lingered on for another year because of various legal wrangles, but the glory days were long past and on the very last day of trading on the 9th of May 1973, only 325 cattle were traded compared to the thousands in previous decades. Over the next year, questions were being asked of the city manager by councillors that suggested the site was in limbo. In November 1973, the manager explains that the site was the subject of discussion, but no decision had been made as to its future. And the site of the former Dublin market is zoned general business in the development plan, uh, and a plan is being prepared for submission to Ancushtatilicus, the planning and development department in the council, which will make generous provision for housing on this site. Nearly a year later, Councillor Richard Gogan was asking what steps had been taken to remove the itinerant dealers who'd occupied the cattle market at North Circular Road, and he was told that the maintenance branch are in the course of demolishing the structures of the cattle market and will seal off the entrances. It is anticipated that by, this time, by the time this work is completed, the itinerants will have been moved from the site. So Dublin's renowned cattle market was no more. The closure of the abattoir followed in 1976, and the Drummer Lee estate was then built on the site, and these days the thriving growth industry in the area is student apartments and expensive coffee shops. Though there is the wonderful TUD campus that everybody's had a chance to look at, which uh, is just a joy to be around. Um, I suppose the the, have the Bose pick? I did. I suppose that is one of the legacies of it, is that in, in the popular culture there, there is still the, the resonate, the resonate of, of, of the dollars, the echoes of, of the market. Um, and it was a unique place for, you know, and, and it, it, it was, it was unique not only for Dublin but also for, for the country. For country people, when they talk of Prussia Street or they hear of Prussia Street, immediately they think of the market. And um, they always think of it with rose tinted glasses. They, they, <laughs> they don't think of it of the, the hard business sense of it and why it closed, you know. And it was, but, um, but I think it was, as I said, it was a unique interface between urban and rural. And it wasn't just the, the it was, the ancillary um, businesses as well. There was uh, Lenehan's in Peel Street. There was um, there was three or four businesses around around the area where farmers bought not only agricultural uh, implements. They bought they bought sprays. They brought seed. They bought one man I talked to. They said they reckon they bought the first two tractors. 
in, in you know, off of, I think it was Peel Street. So it was, it was, and it, the fact that it was weekly, you know, that it was, um, it was, it was, it was an event every week. I just wanted to add, uh, go back to my original reason for getting involved with the cattle market at all, uh, which was um, the disappearing workplace that it represents. Uh, because we are losing our industrial heritage at a rate of knots. And mainly these days we find that the, to record the existences of major workplaces like the cattle market or indeed the docklands or various others around the city, we rely on the memories of people who lived and worked near them or the workplaces uh, that Douglas mentioned that were associated with them. Now, heritage policies are slowly catching up with the recognition of the value of industrial heritage, but it's slow. And there's great value in everyday objects. If you have photographs or you're aware of you know, the tools that might have been used uh, to try and save them, to prompt memories and shed light on our industrial processes and the working methods that may no longer exist, but that have created the kind of society that we have. Because work is an absolutely essential commodity in the human experience. And while it can be contradictory, um, as we've seen, you know, even just in terms of the housing associated with various industries, it is extremely important that uh, we remember where uh, the shape of our communities and our cities actually arose. So the disappearance of the Dublin cattle market um, is an important reminder of that we need to study the ways in which people lived and worked in the past by using the physical remains. Now, sadly, most of what we've got in this area would be the names of streets or the odd thing like the Cowtown Cafe, which of course has gone now. Uh, but you know, things like that are at least hints that there was a different way of living and working in the past. And uh, we need to put pressure on where the money comes from to remind uh, the government and local councils that the best way to conserve and protect our industrial heritage for the future is to make sure we do so before they're irretrievably replaced. Well, thank you for listening to us. Grange Gorman Histories is a public history project of Dublin City Council, the Grange Gorman Development Agency, the Health Service Executive, the National Archives, the Royal Irish Academy, Technical University Dublin and local communities. To find out more, visit grangegormanhistories.ie